Welcome to the National Academy of Medicine Scholars and Diagnostic Excellence Expert Introduction Podcast. Today, we're talking about the role of technology in the diagnostic process. My name is Cornelius James, and I will be hosting this episode. I am a general internist and a general pediatrician at the University of Michigan. My work is focused on teaching clinical reasoning and evidence-based medicine across the medical education continuum and use of artificial intelligence and machine learning-based technologies to augment diagnostic decision-making. I'm thrilled to introduce you to Dr. Karen DeSalvo. Dr. DeSalvo is currently serving as the Chief Health Officer at Google. She has immense experience related to the use of technology in healthcare. Dr. DeSalvo has considered the impact of technology on healthcare through a number of lenses. For example, prior to her role at Google, she was Vice Dean for Community Affairs and Health Policy and Chief of General Internal Medicine and Geriatrics at Tulane School of Medicine. She also served as the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology and Acting Assistant Secretary for Health in the Obama Administration. Dr. DeSalvo, thank you for your service and your major contributions to improving the diagnostic process, and thank you for joining us and sharing your experience and expertise. I'm excited to speak with you about the role of technology in the diagnostic process today. Thank you, Cornelius, for having me. It's been such a delight getting to know you, and I look forward to our conversation. All right, great. Well, let's get started. So my first question for you, Dr. DeSalvo, is can you give me a little bit of background about yourself and your career? I will. And you should definitely call me Karen while we're chatting and otherwise. I have been one of those people that stumbled into medicine, being an unlikely person to have gone to medical school. I knew really young that I wanted to be a doctor. I was about 13 but I didn't know any doctors and I didn't know what was lying ahead. And as I've shared with you, I grew up pretty poor. And so it was this aspiration without a lot of clarity of the practicalities. And I'm grateful that I did it because I love, love, love the practice of medicine and going into it without really fully understanding what I was getting into. I always think, oh, that was, that worked out well because it's, Mm -hmm. it was a gift. I trained and then practiced medicine in New Orleans. I was on the faculty at Tulane, as you mentioned, and I did a lot of my practice at Charity Hospital, the big public hospital there. It was a really wonderful experience. I was taught a lot by my patients about the realities of their lives, but it was also, even in the late 90s when I was in training and then a junior faculty, a pretty antiquated system. So one of the first roles I had was running the resident clinic, and it was important leadership opportunity for me because it came with some management openings, meaning I had the latitude not just to focus on the education and the clinical piece, but to begin to think about the systems in which we were taking care of patients. And so the richness of that early period of my faculty position in particular was about thinking of not only the medicine we were practicing, but what were the inputs that the docs had before they opened the door of the exam room? Did they have the old medical record? Was there continuity in the relationship? Were we making it as convenient and accessible as possible to the patients that we were there to serve? What were we doing in between for follow-up? And it was like you'd imagine. I mean, it was a paper chart environment with complete discontinuity. 95% of the time, there was no old medical record when the patients came into the clinic, and it was 12 months to get a new appointment. And if you missed your follow-up appointment, it could be 12 months till you got back in the system. It was a really bogged, broken system, ripe for all kinds of quality improvement opportunity and was how I really began my journey of thinking it's not just great care by great doctors, but it's about the systems in which we all work and, and what can we do to automate as much as possible to take away some of the 
the human fallibilities that may make it harder for people to access great quality care. And I'd say my journey just continued on from that in a variety of ways through education, research, leadership, and now at the scale that we're working on doing at Google. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that and very inspiring on a number of levels given your start and then even your start in medical education. I just find it very inspiring as a medical educator myself. I want to follow up real fast on something because I didn't dig into it, but I think it's worth saying, especially for the medical educators who are thinking about how do you build the next gen of docs, but more importantly, for people that are earlier in their career, when you're given an opportunity that doesn't seem like an opportunity, I'm going to be very specific. When they told me I was going to run the resident clinic, when the chairman of the department did, I thanked him and said, no, I'm, I'm an inpatient doc. I'm not interested in running the resident <laughs> clinic. And he said, you know, you don't understand. Starting July 1, you're going to be the medical director of the resident clinic. And the gift there was, it was such a broken system. And I didn't like working in it, much less the patients didn't like the way it was for them that all I saw was just opportunities to fix things. And so it pushed me into an environment where it did seem broken. It wasn't, I wasn't happy with how it was working. And I was given a lot of latitude to make change. And even the simplest of things that we were able to do without even new spend. And one of the examples would be, like I mentioned, the medical records only being available 5% of the time. I learned because I was on the medical records committee and some other places that we had actually bought a system that would automate sending the old chart from the basement to the clinic And we also had bought a scheduling system, neither of which had been turned on and used. We did that. We did the education. And we went from never having a chart to always having a chart. We flipped it. So 95% of the time there was a chart. We improved continuity. We were able to reduce the next available appointment to two weeks and keep it there. It had been a year because it was random chance when we were doing it by paper. It's a longer story. But when we automated even those systems, it gave people more access and more information And I would say that changed forever the way I thought about the importance of leveraging technology to improve care. It's not always just the health AI. Sometimes it's just the simplest administrative things that can make a difference. Awesome. Again, thank you so much for sharing that. I definitely saw some great insight with respect to things like systems thinking and patient safety quality improvement and the paper chart example that you gave there was outstanding. So another question that I had, COVID-19 has been challenging for everyone. It's been really tough specifically for the medical community. And I'm curious about whether or not there's been anything that you've learned specifically about yourself that surprised you, or if you discovered a hidden strength about yourself. Well, I'll tell you, I had just started at Google when the pandemic happened. I started in early December of 2019. And I struggled with whether I should step out of my role and pick up my stethoscope and go on the front lines. Part of that was aggravated because my husband's a doctor, all my friends are doctors. My whole world was out there putting their lives at risk. Being a doctor is how I very much identify, but I don't think I expected how emotionally difficult that was for me to not be slinging a stethoscope in this moment of crisis. You know, my husband, he's an ER doc, and he sort of helped me think this through. And he said, okay, you've been a public health professional, and you know that getting people the right information can save their life. He's like, I can tell people one off, I can help people one off, but what you have out there through search and YouTube is a way to reach billions of people, to tell them to wear a mask, to wash their hands over time, get vaccinated, where to get tested. I mean, these are all things that we've done that have literally reached billions of people. We've been able to amplify the public health message. And I had to know that my role in this time and place was not to have my stethoscope in hand, but to be partnered with our engineers and others to see that the good, important messages got out to the public. 
and that we were doing everything we could to address misinformation as well. I'm not sure I necessarily learned anything about myself in that moment, but I, I guess I had to evolve my self-identity that the way I was going to make a difference in this pandemic, in this moment, was not going to be the practice of medicine. It was going to be basically the practice of public health through our platform here at Google. And I'm much more reconciled with that now than I was a couple of years ago. But I guess I was a little surprised at how much pull I had. I was in California and I didn't have my black bag. It was in Louisiana. I panic ordered on Amazon a new stethoscope. And so when I say I wanted to pick up my stethoscope, I ordered something so I would have it when I needed to go into the tents to start caring for people. I'm a, I'm a run into the fire kind of person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I was like, okay, I've gotten, that's good, but I've really, I've got other work that we need to do for the world. Thank you so much for sharing that. And it just sounds so human. And I know that the people who are listening to this couldn't see your face when you were describing wanting to go out there and do something. But I saw it and I really appreciate how I can appreciate that it really seemed as though you really wanted to get out there and start doing something with that stethoscope. And I also appreciate what you mentioned about kind of bouncing things off of your husband and you know, just having someone there to provide that kind of support as needed. So thank you so much for sharing that. Again, it just seems so human. Before we actually jump into technology and diagnostic safety, I was curious about whether or not you could talk a little bit about the history of digitization in healthcare. And how do you think we've kind of gotten to where we are today when it comes to the role of technology in healthcare? I was talking about paper charts that were so common. Now, on the Medical Records Committee in the, the late 90s at Charity Hospital, we were looking at some electronic health records, but it wasn't until for us, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans in 2005, that we had this shift of saying, we're not going to go back to paper when we rebuild across the community because the paper charts turned into bricks that were useless, essentially. Mm -hmm. And any system like the VA that had electronic health records already was able to care for people in a more seamless fashion, continue their chemo, their HIV regimen, whatever that was. So experiencing that for me personally, of the acuteness of how valuable a digital record is, the care experience, just from a pure population health standpoint, certainly woke me up. And that happened to coincide with the national push around electronic health records. And that push, as folks probably know, is that in the Bush administration, W, a guy named David Brailer, a physician, general internist, had been brought in to conceive of creating the digitization of the care experience for everyone in America. Bush said that everybody should have their own electronic health record. So that was around 2004. In 2005, they were really picking up steam. They, in fact, did quite a lot of work to help in Louisiana after the storm to get people's pharmacy records in particular together. But I take people back to that time and to the fact that the Bush administration started this to make the point particularly that this has been a bipartisan effort that's been going on for a couple of decades. And in the digitization of the care experience, there's been a lot of good. Yes, it came with some discomfort from a change management and a knowledge management standpoint, but we have now succeeded and digitized the care experience of every American, which has given researchers and clinicians and population health professionals an opportunity to understand care, but it's also now creating this entirely new world of reality where we can use that data to create diagnostics and therapeutic tools that allow us to apply AI in the clinical environment to democratize access to great quality care. So that sort of next layer of the journey is on our footsteps. On the other, on the flip side though, for consumers, they didn't engender as much benefits yet. I think the docs now, we, we have that information when we're on call or if we want to use it for research or we want to use it for care. 
we kind of superseded Bush's vision of everyone having access to their electronic health record. And we have hyperportalosis. People have lots of medical records. So we got to get all that together. In my time as national coordinator, this was a big push for me, centering data around the person, thinking about the EHR data as one set of information. There was other sources of data that tell the story of someone's health that we needed to make it a more open, non-proprietary system by pushing non-proprietary APIs and require that there's a pathway to people being able to aggregate their longitudinal health records. So from birth to death, no matter where they went for care and whatever other data, including patient-generated outcomes that they wanted to import would be a part of their record. That work that we started when I was there was continued by my successor, Vindel Washington, and then by Don Rucker, and then now by Mickey Tripathi. So I think the good news is, is we've, we've tried very hard in the digitization of the care experience in America to build upon everyone's work and not move the industry around. I think we've made pretty good progress for the healthcare enterprise. Now we've got to figure out how to aggregate data beyond the healthcare episodic thing and to get it interoperable, not a technology problem, a business problem. Yep. And consumers need to be able to control that information so they can be more in control of their own health journey. That's an important next chapter I think the next couple of years of the policy environment are going to support. But I tell you what, unlike other industries, we had to use money to force the healthcare enterprise to digitize, and we still have to in many ways. Whereas in the financial sector, they found ways that it could improve their margins, that it made sense for service, that it improved their capabilities. And I think healthcare is, it's a little still bewildering to me that we were so resistant. I'm hoping that in this next chapter, we're thinking about ways to put the information to good use, which is exactly the kind of work you're doing. I'm super excited about how you all are thinking about doing good for patients with the information that we now have, because we don't have to go to the basement to pull the old medical record. Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. And I think what you just stated just kind of highlights the complexities of the system within which we work and all of the various stakeholders, but keeping the patient at the center, but the different stakeholders that we are engaging with when it comes to trying to do the best for our patients. I have another question for you, Karen. So during our session with the fellows that we are all very much excited about, we'll be talking about the future of diagnosis and technology. I'd like to know what are some topics that you would definitely like to cover during our time together in March with the other fellows? I think I might say that if we step up and say, what are the big, what are the principles by which we want to build the use of technology as a tool set for diagnosis and therapy, even just trying to help with decision-making and diagnosis, we should make sure that the work is grounded in a strong set of values. And I think about some really important big picture ones that we should want to address. One is to ensure that technology is driving equity, not exacerbating it. The second is that we're attending to whether the technology is creating a more safe healthcare environment or system, creating better outcomes for people, or if it's creating an unsafe environment and where those trade-offs are. I think there's also some important work that we have to do that we're not adding cost to the system, but we're using it for cost reduction and removing waste. So equity, safety, and cost reduction. It seems probably to you and many others, well, of course, that's exactly how we'd want to approach the work. But I think as you look at some of the point solutions that might be developed using technology, often it's a an add-on and it's not really thinking about getting to the core of the work we want to do. And I think we've not done a sufficient job in the industry of 
taking a principled, intentional approach to equity and, and ethics at the outset. And look, these are not easy. I mean, I'll give you the, you know, some of the examples about equity. We know that AI models have limits. Um, we know sometimes that they don't perform the same in different environments. We know that the data in really matters as you're building the model to see that it's fair. But we also know that the builders can create bias in the building of the model. It's a pretty complex pathway to see that the models are fair. But also there's an interesting ethical trade-off, Cornelius, where they'll never probably have perfectly fair models. The question is, is when is it fair enough that it's going to do so much good that it outweighs the potential that it may not be perfect in the way it identifies or treats everything? Is it better than the way that we're, for example, doing diagnostic decision-making that's loaded with implicit bias or limited amounts of data? Can we automate some of that or augment some of the biases that are inherently a part of the healthcare system? The safety piece is, it's worthy of a fair amount of thinking and discussion because even in the electronic health record world, which I would say is like the base case of some of the data and where AI tools might you know, sit on top to, to be at the elbow and support decision-making in the clinical environment, we have not as a country, nasal world, really got a, a strong pathway for addressing whether digital improves the safety of the care experience or of care outcomes or care pathways, or whether it's exacerbating them and how to handle situations where safety issue needs to be reported and addressed. There's been good thinking about it in the airline industry. We always point to as a good example, but the NTSB has a, a pretty open way of everyone sharing, oh, we learned that this model actually, not a model, but in their case, this technology is driving some sort of a poor outcome and how do we fix it? It's pretty nascent in healthcare. It's one thing to do decision support, but once you start to amplify that by using computer vision to read past slides or imaging slides and start to think about what are the implications if it's not quite right and how do we notify people? How do we pull it down? Who has the authority to do that? How are we reporting safety challenges that are found? How we talk about it? What's the language we use? It's a really important area. And I hope people will start thinking about creating not only the culture, but the principles, policy, and process around it. Finally, and I won't go deeply into it, is for whatever reason, we just in healthcare love to create things that drive up cost. And we just got to stop it. It's because every dollar we spend on healthcare is a dollar we don't spend on education. Full stop. You have allowed me to appreciate a lot of the work that we have to do in this area, but I'm excited about it. I have one more question for you, Karen, and that's just one piece of advice as you think about where we as scholars are in our journeys. What's one piece of advice that you have for the diagnostic scholars? I love it when incredibly successful people ask for advice because I feel like <laughs> there's not much I can say. You included, my friend. I'll tell you something I often tell people. I might tell you more than one. First of all, begin with the end in mind. And the easiest way to do that is to write your own obituary. Sounds macabre, but if you take the time to say, at the end of my life, what is it that I want to be able to say that I gave to the world? It might be that I was a great parent or great friend or that I rescued puppies. I mean, there's lots of ways that people make a difference in the world. Sometimes you don't even know it. But in the space of medicine, what are the things and research, what are the things that you want to say you did? It can help with some of those important trade-off decisions that face you every day. Which gets me to the second piece of advice. Smart people and successful people get called to do a lot of things, which can fill your calendar pretty briskly, pretty fast. And I know this sounds selfish and I hope people won't misunderstand, but it is important to, to try to learn to say no. 
if you're beginning with the end of mind, this is my North Star. This is the thing that I want to say that I can advance or work on in my time. It helps you then think about how you're going to mentor, how you're going to work in your organization, committee work and otherwise, what papers you'll work on, what grants you'll go for, what organizations you'll get involved in. For me, I've just found it's a way that it allows me to align my North Star with the people and organizations that I might want to work with because I feel like there's synergies. So many opportunities come at people. And if you spread yourself so thin, then you, I think you find that you're not able to give in the way that you might want to intellectually and emotionally and sometimes physically. I am still learning to say no. I'm really bad at it. But, <laughs> but I also know that if I don't try, then I don't do the service to the things that I'm really passionate about and really care about. So I'm just acknowledging it's not an easy thing, but it's definitely a good skill to learn. And if you're earlier in your career and you have strong mentors who can help you say no, it's a good way to start so that you can put a lot of wood behind a few arrows. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm going to just kind of summarize and say, we have to get better at picking which fires we run into. Oh, there <laughs> you go. Perfect. <laughs> so I really, I really appreciate that. So thank you so much, Karen, for talking to me about your work in technology and your efforts in pursuit of diagnostic excellence. And this has really been fun. And as I stated, I really do believe that we're going to have a great session in March. My fellow scholars will appreciate getting to know you the way that I've been able to get to know you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to chatting next month. And it was great to spend some time with you, Cornelius. Keep up.